This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Exodus 19. This past Friday morning, a caravan of people from the trails traveled over to the Collin County Courthouse. We were not in trouble with the law, just so that's clear. We were there to stand with Micah and Whitney Rushley and to witness a judge proclaim them the legal parents of Levi and Lydia Rushley. After 1,044 days of living under the same roof, the Rushley children, Adeline, Gwyneth, Elijah, and Josiah, were eager to welcome a new brother and new sister into their family. And before the final ruling was pronounced, the attorney turned to Micah and Whitney and asked them if they were there to seek a legal, permanent parental relationship with those two children. And with joy, they both said yes. And then eventually they asked both Levi and Lydia if they wanted to stay with these parents forever and ever. And with joy, they said yes. As a part of the adoption, the names of both these children were changed. And each of them leaned into the microphone and said their names with a sense of confidence and with a sense of identity, so they knew who their forever, ever parents were going to be. And they knew who they were in this established relationship. They were Rushleys. So if you see Micah and Whitney and their gaggle of children uh, running around the trails in the next few weeks, be sure and congratulate them. And let's pray together for hundreds more adoptions in the years to come. As I was crying, I mean sitting in that courtroom, uh, the theme of our relationship with God as Father was flooding my thoughts. Adoption is such a crystal clear picture of the gospel. It's a parable that teaches us what God our Father has done for us in adopting us as his beloved forever, ever children. And he's done that through the completed work of Jesus. In our study of the book of Exodus, we have witnessed a caravan of people from the line of Israel travel through the desert to a place called Mount Sinai after 146,000 days of slavery and 60 more days of wandering the desert, the children of God finally arrive at the wonderful place where they will be given a sort of legal declaration of who they are and what it means to be the people of God. It would be near impossible to overemphasize the importance of what happens at this mountain of Sinai in the storyline of Scripture. The entire congregation of Israel is encamped there for almost an entire year in the shadow of Sinai. And though it's only one of 
40 years in total they spend in the wilderness, what God tells them in this account fills the pages of the rest of Exodus. So if you start in Exodus 19 and keep turning to the right till you run out of room at 40, it all records what God does at Sinai. And then the entire book of Leviticus, and then even spills over into the book of Numbers, all the way stretching to Numbers chapter 10, verse 10. So Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers all record what happens in this just shy of one year period in the life of God's people in Sinai. What content fills that much of the Pentateuch? Well, the main subject is the law of God. That's what God gives to his people here, is his instruction, his command, his Torah. Yet, before God teaches his people his law, he speaks to them about their identity. In the first 18 chapters of Exodus, we have seen God reveal who he is. Now, in chapter 19, he will teach them who they are. He will even give them new names to signify this special relationship that he has with them to show his chosen covenantal forever and ever relationship with his children. What does it mean to you to have been chosen by God? Everything. Exodus 19, 1 through 8 has often been described as the heart of the Old Testament. These remarkable verses remind Israel what God has done for them in the past. They invite them into a formal relationship with God through a covenant and then give them a new identity as his treasured possession. God brought his people to Mount Sinai so that they might experience his presence to hear his voice and eventually be sent on their way to the promised land. In this passage contains the heart of Exodus. And we find here something of the very heart of God toward his people. Before the Lord outlines his law, he outlines who his people are. A people with a great salvation with a relational covenant and a people with a holy identity. Let me invite you to stand once more as we read together from God's holy and inerrant word, though written long ago, speaks to us today. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai, They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore... If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. 
The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. The first truth about God's people is that we have been given a great salvation. Verses 1 through 4. As the Israelites settle in the foothills, Moses goes up the mountain to meet with God. This is the very place that Yahweh had spoken to Moses back in Genesis or Exodus 3 uh, through this burning bush. Now the Lord speaks to him again. And it's a series of things that he is commanded to communicate to the entire nation of Israel. And the place that God wants them to begin is by looking backward to the past. Verse 4 is a tiny summary of Exodus chapters 4 through 18. It tells a story. It's meant to remind the people how God redeemed them by blood and saved them with his hand. There are three words that come to the forefront that help outline the story. The words are this, judgment, salvation, and presence. Let's look at those. Judgment. God begins by saying, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. What he has in view here is a uh, wanting them to rehearse the ten plagues that uh, God had performed as an act of judgment and also as a demonstration of his power over Pharaoh, over all of nature, over the gods of the Egyptians. The Lord turned the fresh water of the Nile into blood. He filled the brightness of the midday sky into darkness. He took the lives of, Egypt, of Egypt's firstborn sons and ultimately destroyed their army by the waters that he commanded at the Red Sea. God did all of this that he might be known. That he might be known. And they are not to forget. God was made known in the judgment of his enemies. And God was made known in the salvation of his people. That's the second word, salvation. The salvation of God was so great, so glorious, that common prose would simply not do. Poetry must be used. God says, I bore you on eagles' wings. Well, that wonderful metaphor. Some of you already have in your mind the Lord of the Rings, right? The nerds among us. Where Frodo and Sam uh, are at the, the ninth hour, the eleventh hour, these eagles come in and sweep them away to victory. But for the rest of us, we have no understanding of what that is, so we'll move on. But that's the picture here. That's what Tolkien wants you to think of is this very passage. This metaphor of God rescuing his people by bearing them on his wings like an eagle is meant to compare the loving kindness and protection and strength and care of God to that of an eagle with its children. Later, Moses will sing of this theme in Deuteronomy chapter 32, where in verses 10 through 12, he says that God found his people in the desert land, in the howling wasteland of the wilderness. He encircled his people. He cared for them. He kept him as the apple of his eye. And haven't we seen that in these chapters? 
And then, verse 11, like an eagle that stirs up its nest and flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them when they fall, bearing them on its pinions, the Lord alone guided him. Him there is Israel. And what Moses sings of is the loving kindness and protection and strength and care of God toward his people. Yes, that's what God has done. Salvation. And the final word is presence. This is the phrase, I brought you to myself. Those are remarkable words. This flight from Egypt was about more than a final destination at Sinai. They were carried to God himself. God did not save his people merely so they would be free. He saved them so that they would be with him. These are precious words. I brought you to myself. God wanted his people to be near him. And he wanted to be there with them. And so he defeated their ancient enemy. He redeemed them with the blood of the lamb. He called them out of bondage. He swept into their slavery and brought them into freedom and worship to serve him alone. I love how Victor Hamilton says what this phrase suggests. He said that God's primary purpose of bonding with Israel is for the rapturous enjoyment of each other's presence. God wanted them to know him, to be with him, to be near him. Before Israel was chosen for service, Israel is chosen for fellowship with God. That's what they were brought to. The entire witness of Scripture is that God's people are utterly incapable of finding our way to God. We must have Him come to us and bring us to Him. And in Christ, well, this is exactly what God has done. Christian, let us not forget the mighty redemption of God in our own lives. Like our forebears, we also have been given a great salvation. We ourselves, to use the, mo the language of Moses, have seen the judgment of God poured out on Christ, who stood in our place, bearing the punishment that we deserved, and how God, through Christ, defeated Satan and sin and the grave. We have experienced the Lord save us from the bondage of our sin as he swooped down into our grave condition in order that he might lift us up with his mighty hand. And we've known how God brought us to him. We were carried on the wings of salvation. So today, for all who are in Christ, let us look back and remember all that God has done for us. We have a great salvation. The second gift the Lord gives his people is a relational covenant. We're going to zoom in on 5a, just the very beginning part of verse 5. And as we reach this part of the text, it is very important that we're aware of where we sit in the sequence of these events. 
Israel has been saved. Now they are given a covenant. The purpose of the covenant of Sinai is not to make Israel God's people. They were already God's people. Earlier in Exodus, the Lord has called them in chapter 3, verse 10, my people. In chapter 4, 22, my firstborn son. And in that same passage, again, in case we're unclear, my son. The Lord's great salvation has already been given to them in the past. They had been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and saved by the mighty hand of God. Now, there's a verb tense change to the present and the future as we arrive at the mention of the covenant that God has made with his people. So God's reminded them how they were saved, how he has adopted them into his family, and now he's setting the terms of the relationship, the family rules, if you will, that are being required of them. And there's a classic if-then clause that frames this passage. In this point, the second point of the sermon, we're just looking at the if part of the clause. If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. And what I want to do is look at this keeping of the covenant in both an internal lens and through an external lens because the two go together. This is a command to respond from God to his people and it both internal and external. The first aspect Internal. God commands his people to obey his voice. And the actual language in the Hebrew is a careful attentiveness to every word that comes from God's mouth. The voice of God is used 10 times in chapters 19 through 24. God repeats himself of the importance of his voice. To pay careful attention to his words, to his instruction. God's words are to be taken seriously. The very voice that breathed into existence all things and lit the first morning sun. The voice that spoke to Adam and Eve in the cool of the day as they walked through the garden. The voice that spoke to Abram in Genesis 12, his great covenant that through him he would bless all the peoples of the earth. His voice that revealed himself back in chapter 3 that he is I am that I am. And very soon we will see the voice of God thunder from this same mountain. Yet, if they are to be his people, they must internally believe and receive by faith every word of God. The second piece of this covenant that God's making with them is that they must keep it. They must not just be hearers of the word, but be doers also. So the people must obey and keep the commandments that the Lord gives. The earlier expressions of the covenant with Abraham were unilateral covenants, meaning God created them without any stipulations for the people other than to believe. Well, the Mosaic covenant is a bilateral covenant. It's a two-way covenant. God is the author of it. He created it. He spoke it. And now he calls his people to be faithful to their part of the covenant. They are to listen and obey all that the Lord speaks. Now, before we take one more step, it is critical that we remember once again um, where we are. So the Lord has not given them the law in order to save themselves. 
but he's teaching and instructing them how to live as his chosen people. So when they were back in Egypt, if they had cried out to the Lord, deliver us, and God would have replied, keep my commandments, obey all my laws, and I will. That would have been them earning their salvation. But that's not what happened, right? God's already saved them. He's already redeemed them. And now he speaks to them. So that's very critical. And we must remember where we are in the unfolding story of Scripture. This is Exodus 19. This is the Old Testament. This is under the Old Covenant. I think Phil Riken is so helpful when he explains it like this. There's a condition here that was not met until Christ came into the world. To be sure, even in the Old Testament, salvation came by grace through faith. So just time out. How were people in the Old Testament saved? By grace through faith in the word of God as they awaited the Messiah. And how are we saved today? By grace through faith in Jesus the Messiah. This Exodus is the supreme example of the way salvation in Christ was written into Israel's history. But God also made it clear that full obedience, perfect covenant keeping was required. There are theologians who want to soften this in an attempt to like, recover grace alone through faith alone and say, oh, these, these laws given are just for God's people to flourish. Well, that's true. But there's another use for the law, and that is to show them their need for the grace of God. The perfect obedience and covenant keeping is something that this group of people could never perform. Why? Because they were made in the image of God, and they were made in the image of Adam. They had fallen from grace. And with this covenant, God would teach them that ultimately a true and better son who would be given, who would also wander the wilderness, but instead of sin, he would walk perfect, in perfect obedience. And he would keep the law in all of its detail down to the letter of it. Hebrews 9.15 says that it was Christ who was the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. So God, what I want us to see here is that when God gives his word to his people, it wasn't meant to be a burden to them, but to teach them both who he is and all of his holiness and teach them how to live as his covenant people. He knew full well they couldn't do it on their own. He knew full well this is why he had planned in the eternal covenant to provide the grace they would need that was then fulfilled in Christ. What I want us to see real quick before we move on is that, and guys, we've got a lot of weeks to unpack the role of the law in the life of the Christian today because we're not Old Testament believers. We're new covenant people. So we're going to learn like together um, how we interact with these laws some we still are called to observe, others we're not. Like you can boil a baby goat in its mother's milk if you'd like. But there's a reason you shouldn't do that, and we'll get there in a few weeks. We can't answer all the questions. Here's what I want you to hear today, and this comes with a built-in response for you and me. As the people of God, we are called to obey and keep his commands. 
The commands of God in Scripture are not divine suggestions for us to judge and weigh and decide whether we will apply them. They are His very word given to us as a revelation of who He is and teaching us. And at the heart of every command is an invitation to relationship with God. So we're right to look at the Old Testament through the good news of the gospel. And we also want to take it seriously, everything that God has said. Knowing that before we, we, we see it as a burden, right? By the time of Christ, he's coming to show how burdensome the law had become. And that's absolutely true. But at its core, at its heart, this is the heart of God revealed. So we want to love the word of God and love his laws. Knowing that at the heart of that is a relationship. A relational covenant given to us. The final gift the Lord gives to his people is a holy identity. So now we arrive at the then part of this if-then clause. If the Israelites will obey God and keep his commandments, that's the stipulations for the covenant, here are the blessings that will befall them. Um, Blessing is uniquely articulated, not in stuff, but the kind of people they will become. As we think about the book of Exodus, we understand how important the salvation from Egypt was. We understand the importance of the Ten Commandments. But before one of those laws are written in stone, something incredibly significant happens right here. God roots his people in their identity. Who are they? They are the people of God. And they are three remarkable phrases that God uses to describe his people. Each one giving a little different contour and color of the identity of the people of God. First, he says, they are my treasured possession. Oh, that is a wonderful phrase. The word treasured possession in Hebrew is just one word. It's used a couple of times in Scripture. It generally refers to, um, you know, the king of a kingdom technically owns everything, right? This is not capitalism. The king owns it all. And of the king's many possessions, he would have a selection of things that were his most valuable possessions. And so what we have here is God, the creator and sustainer, the maker of the heavens and the earth, the king who reigns over all looks down at this dusty people in the Sinai desert and says, of everything that I've made, this is my absolute favorite creation. This is the thing I love the most. This speaks to the uniqueness of Israel in the eye of God. Moses elaborates on what is behind the election of Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 9. And I want you to pay special attention here to why the Lord chose to love Israel in this special way. Deuteronomy 7, beginning in verse 6. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Why? Verse 7. It's not because you were more in number than any of the other people, that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you 
and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers. That's Abraham. That the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and his commandments to a thousand generations. So why would God choose to set his love on this wandering, grumbling group of sinners? He chose to. What's so special about them? What's so special about them is that God loves them. Why does God love them? Because he loves them. He has chosen to love them. Then we get to this phrase, a kingdom of priests. A priest had special knowledge of God, particular access to God, welcome to call upon God as a, a part of his office. God's saying his people, we all have knowledge of him, and they will all have access to him. They will all be able to call upon the Lord. Now, we'll see in just a couple of weeks there's uh, not everybody can come straight up to the presence of God. Certainly, uh, the priesthood is going to be developed. But ultimately, the uniqueness of Israel was, is God not being a God who pushes his people, but who welcomes them, who calls them to himself. Surely what's in view here is a precursor to the priesthood of all believers. We believe that as the people of God, if you're in Christ, you have access to God the Father through Jesus. You don't need a father or a priest or anybody to pray for you. You have full access to God. Israel would be set aside. They would be different, peculiar, because they would know God in a unique way, which leads right to this final name that the, God, that the Lord gives his people. They would be a holy nation. The Holy One of Israel... God calls Israel to now be a holy nation on the earth. This title designates them as a separate, a distinct nation because they worship the holy God who is separate and distinct. And God has planned that the lives of his people would demonstrate, would image, would witness to the world his own holiness. The holy God is called a holy people. So before we move on, I want you to notice there's a phrase buried in all of these covenantal blessings that actually give focus and purpose to the identity given to them. It's in verse 5. Look at this. Among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. So Israel, I'm going to call you out as a treasured possession, as a priesthood, a kingdom of priests, and as a holy nation from among all the peoples, for all the earth is, not, is mine. Now, buried in this covenant that God makes with them is the awareness that there are other peoples as well. People who don't yet know the God who redeems. People who've not yet known his salvation. Who don't have his word. And so God, through his people, would be a witness to the world. They would be a light that shines in the darkness. Bringing praise and glory to God. There's a missional scope to the identity of this kingdom of priests. They are meant to live in a different way. So they shine the light of God into the darkness. Well, 
Okay, that's all fine and well, but what does the holy identity of Israel from long ago mean to you and me today? I'm so glad you asked. I want you to turn to the book of First Peter, chapter 2. First Peter, chapter 2. And while you're turning there, I want to speak to you. For those of you who are Christians, you've been born again by the Spirit of God, adopted into the family of God by grace through faith. But you wake up some mornings and you look in the mirror and you don't feel like a treasured possession. And those who look over your own choices and thoughts and sin patterns and think, holy, that can't be, that can't be me. For those of you who feel like being a priest to God with access to him is just too great a gift for you. Those of you who are in Christ, God looks you square in the eye and this is what he says. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. And this is gospel news. But you are a chosen race. You Christian are a royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for God's own possession. Why would he do this? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Well, how did this happen? Well, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people, regardless of how you feel about it that morning. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So those of you who fight unbelief, you see, we're all, we're all programmed to look to the law and to try to justify ourselves before God by how we do. But the good news of the gospel is we come before God through what Christ has done, not what we do. So do you need help with your identity this morning? Will you need it Friday night? Tomorrow morning at work? Here it is. Because of Christ, this is who you are. And this is a unique thing. Not everybody is called this. Right? So if you're not in Christ, if you've never confessed your sins and turned to Jesus by grace through faith, then none of this is true of you. And that's meant to offend you. It's actually meant to bring you to the end of yourself where you could say, well, there's nothing I can do. And that's exactly right. And so even in this very moment, you can look to Christ who has done it all. You can repent of your sin. And by faith, trust in Jesus. And join us. Join us who were once not a people, but are now people who once didn't know mercy and now know mercy. This is the identity that we've been given, a holy identity. Well, these remarkable verses remind Israel what God has done for them. They invite her into this formal relationship through covenant. 
They give Israel a new identity as his treasured possession. And as we read this ancient text, we're reminded what God has also done for us in Christ. How he has invited us into relationship through the true and better covenant of Christ's blood. The identity that we now enjoy as God's treasured possession. And at the heart of the Bible is the story of the one true living God who won salvation for his chosen people in order that we might experience his presence in this life and in the life to come, to be forever with him. Let's give thanks to the Lord together. Father, how grateful we are for your word, for your salvation. For your commitment to us as your people, this covenant that you have made. Thank you that you don't change your mind about us. But you've set your love on us. I pray that we would live in the good of all that your word has said. That we would walk in the joy of our salvation. That we would live in the freedom of your law. And that we would revel in the goodness of your presence. We ask for your help in this. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.